Our lesson for today comes from Exodus chapter 3. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led his flock beyond the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. He looked, and the bush was blazing, yet it was not consumed. Then Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, come no closer. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said further, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land, to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the country of the Canaanites, Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The cry of the Israelites has now come to me. I have also seen how the Egyptians oppressed them. So come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He said, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. But Moses said to God, if I come to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent to me, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said further, thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, thus you shall say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this my title for all generations. Here ends the reading. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, stir up your holy power this day and come. Send your spirit into our hearts, our minds, our souls, and our ears, that we might hear a word for us today anew, and that we too might then live out that which we believe. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Maybe one of my greatest regrets uh, as a preacher is that uh, the sermon time is uh, so one-sided. Uh, and for members who are uh, regular here, you'll know that from time to time, I take a little time out from that sort of monologue-style sermon, and I invite people in the congregation uh, to dialogue with me and with each other a little bit. We're going to do that this morning. Uh, I know that that often makes people a little uncomfortable because what we're used to uh, is getting sort of this one-sided thing, and then I'm often afraid that you get it for the moment, and then I know this happens because I run into you on Thursday, and I get the, oh, your sermon was great. 
What was that about again? Uh, so I like to try and uh, alleviate that a little bit uh, by providing some dialogue. Um, I also want to say, um, to start off by saying uh, some things like this. Uh, we probably don't need another study or another newspaper article to remind us how divided we are as a country these days. Uh, yet there was one that caught my attention uh, that happened to be in the New York Times uh, earlier this week. Uh, the title was, Divided We Stand, Three Th Psychological Regions of the United States and Their Political, Economic, Social, and Health Concerns. It's a, it's a huge title. Uh, but uh, the essence of the article was this, that Minnesota, where we live, uh, tends to be in this cluster called cluster number one that sort of sweeps from Minnesota kind of all the way through the south. Uh, and then, of course, the two coasts uh, are a different cluster altogether. But what, what sort of identifies us is that as Minnesotans, we hold traditional values. We, we really like the status quo. We don't like things to change a whole lot. And our openness, as a general rule, is quite low. Uh, and that means both dialogue and other people. I think we all are pretty aware of this. We've probably heard this from time to time. People in Minnesota are incredibly friendly, but they never invite you over for dinner. Uh, th this really, I think, sort of sums up who we are. In other words, we kind of like it the way it is, and we're happy and nice to see you, and then everybody goes back to their house. So I don't think I have to tell you that uh, it's the sense of bifurcation or dividedness or polarization in our country is significant. And here's one of my questions as a preacher. How in the world is this ever going to get better? Um, I, I have a particular bias that I think us as a family of faith is one place uh, where it should and needs to get better. Uh, and one of the only ways that we're going to do this is to actually have a conversation with each other and probably disagree. Uh, we're probably going to have to hold really tightly and cling to the promise that you and I have all made, uh, that we are all followers of Jesus, and that is the most important thing that makes us brothers and sisters. Because I have a good feeling that we're going to be divided on a whole bunch of other different things. And one of the other things that I think about us as a family of faith is that we are called to speak the truth to one another in kind, loving, humble confessional ways. I think far too often what happens in regular everyday dialogue is that our conversations with those who we disagree with are often uh, meant to be conversional. I know what's right. If you just listened and thought about my perspective, you would change your mind and then you could be right too. I think this is far too often how our conversations often go. I'm right, you're wrong. Either listen and believe me or be quiet. That's not what we're talking about. I'm talking about offering your perspective in a confessional way, knowing that you too are finite and limited, and offering that perspective in what I would say is a confessional kind of way. The last little precursor to our conversation this morning I want to say is that I think it's really important that we as a family of faith, in our most important weekly gathering, talk about things that are real. And I'm going to conclude our time together with some reflections on that. But what I mean is, this is the most important time when we gather as a family and sit around what we claim to be a dinner table that we are all invited to. And we should have conversations about things that are real 
and be vulnerable and real with each other about them. Here's the thing I also know. Often when I ask you to have conversations with each other, uh, you're more inclined to talk about the weather or your grocery list than you are the topic of conversation that I'm asking you to talk about. I know, I've heard you. I'm telling you this, and I'm going to implore you as a preacher, if a preacher has any opportunity to implore you, the situation in our world is far too dire to talk about the weather. It, the time for talking about the weather is over. I am imploring you as people of faith to make a difference in the world starting right here and right now by daring to have an honest and vulnerable conversation with each other. If you are with me in any sense of the word, that the world needs to change and be different, so must we. And it must start with our vulnerable and real conversations. I am imploring you not to talk about the weather this morning. Okay? All right. So, let's talk about this. That's all preamble. <laughs> One of the difficulties in being a preacher is that when I read these biblical stories, I often hear echoes in our world that then I'm like, is that what that's like? In other words, when I read the stories and enter into the characters and find myself immersed in the biblical story, I often hear things that come out of the news and out of the newspaper, and I'm like, is that like that or is that not like that? And what I'm often trying to figure out is where is God actually working in the world these days? What is God up to? What's happening? Uh, so I hear these echoes in the stories, and I want to... Um, I want to give you one, and then I'm going to give you the opportunity uh, to think about this. So my first question is, is sort of this. What are the qualifications to be called by God to do work in the world? And why do I want to ask this question? Because here's the thing. In the story that we read today, Moses is really a weird character for God to choose. Uh, let me just think, let's just think about who Moses is for just a second. Moses is, A, given up for adoption. In fact, he's floated down the river uh, by his birth parents, and he ends up being taken in by the Pharaoh, who is the most powerful and wealthy ruler in all the land. And Moses comes from a group of people, the Hebrews, who are slaves. And they are enslaved by Pharaoh. The irony of getting adopted by the Pharaoh as a slave child is unbelievable. He's Hebrew by birth, which means he's a poor slave, but he is Egyptian and wealthy by adoption which is strange. He's multi-ethnic in that after he flees out of Egypt, he ends up marrying a Midianite, which in, in sort of Hebrew culture, it's like they're cousins. Uh, so he, he marries into his cousin's family. He has a significant sense of justice and righteousness because one of the stories that happens, the reason he flees and is on the run is because he kills an Egyptian who is harassing another Hebrew slave. And he doesn't have the words to articulate them to stop, so he beats the Egyptian to death. He looks around to make sure nobody saw, but it turns out when he goes back to his own people, the Hebrew people, they don't trust him. They are afraid of him. And he thinks that they're going to tell on him, so he flees, he runs, he's a fugitive from both Egypt and his own people. He's an outsider in every sense of the word. He's been rejected by his birth family. He's been rejected now by his adopted family. He's on the run. He's living with his cousins. He's partially homeless. He is an outsider par excellence. He's a terrible public speaker. We know from the story when God calls him back that he's a mumbler. Now, what does that mean? I don't know. The story doesn't say exactly. But he has to recruit his brother to come and help him. 
So here's my question. Moses is a murderer who's on the run, homeless, rejected by his adopted family, his actual family, had to go move in with some other people. What, what in the world do you take out of that story are the qualifications to be called by God to then lead the people out of, Israel, out of Egypt? Is that not weird? It strikes me as kind of strange. This is not the person that I think when I think, oh, I know who God's going to call. These aren't the qualifications. So here's what I want you to do. Turn to the person sitting next to you. A, does this strike you as strange? And B, what do you think would be the qualifications that God might call somebody to do some work? So just, you have a minute, and the people sitting next to you, think about what I just told you, and have a brief conversation about that. One minute. Ready? Don't talk about the weather. Okay. I'm going to call you back. I know that's not enough time. You can't finish that conversation. You're going to have to do it afterwards. That's part of the point, is to send you out of here with at least a couple of things to talk about. Uh, here's, here's just my own personal reflections. What are the qualifications to be called by God? Uh, forgiven. Uh, a recognition of one's vulnerability. Humility. Uh, in Moses' case, I am certain that this guy is highly aware of his own fragility and humanity. Um, and I wonder if in some ways this isn't redemptive for Moses uh, to be called by God to lead God's people out of Egypt. He also is strangely, I think, uniquely qualified. On the one hand, he knows what it's like to be wealthy and live in the palace. He knows Pharaoh. He can probably talk his language. And on the other hand, he knows what it's like to be outcast and to be a slave and has this incredible sense of righteousness and justice. And he knows what it's like to be on the run. That's good for people that are about to be freed from slavery and be literally on the run for a whole bunch of time. Okay, now what I'm going to do is I'm going to drive us into the ditch. This is my code word for saying what I'm about to do is tell you something that I think or have a perception of might be somewhat controversial, but I can't help but hear these things in the world when I read these stories. If you come to a Wednesday morning Bible study, this is the point where everybody sort of all of a sudden opens their eyes and goes, all right, where are we going? And what I mean is, to introduce a little chaos into the system and to think a little differently and to look for God in the world and to find out whether or not I'm on track or we're on track or what does it look like when God is out in the world. So I'm going to drive us into the ditch a little bit. If you uh, watch football at all and pay attention to the world, uh, you will know that uh, a young man named Colin Kaepernick, uh, about a year or so ago, uh, decided to offer a protest. And his original protest had to do with violence enacted by police officers on African Americans and people in color in particular. And he sat down for the national anthem. Now, what I find really interesting about this, and Colin Kaepernick in particular, is after he got some criticism about that, he decided instead to take a knee during the national anthem for two reasons. A, he felt that it was a posture of prayer. And B, he felt like that way it was more respectful to those who have served in our military. That is a really spectacular and sophisticated line of thinking. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Colin Kaepernick, because here's the thing. Colin Kaepernick, in not always, but in many ways, to me, sounds a little bit like Moses. So just some things to think about. He's adopted. He was born in a multiracial family that had to give him up because they were too worried about being too poor to be able to care for him. He's adopted by a middle-class white family in all places, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Good grief. 
And he also says he either wanted to play for the 49ers or the Packers. Well, I mean, of course. He's multiracial by birth and then adopted by white parents in Milwaukee. He grew up kind of Methodist, kind of Lutheran, kind of Baptist. He's tri-denominational, kind of Baptist, kind of Lutheran, kind of Methodist. I wonder if he knows exactly what it's like to be an outsider because he's always kind of been homeless in a way, given up for adoption, adopted in Milwaukee, bounced around through denominations. Here's the thing that I didn't know. He's a 4.0 student in high school. And he had a great arm, but the coaches were afraid that he was too skinny uh, to run, so they didn't let him. He weighed 170 pounds. He was like 6'4". He's incredibly faithful. The tattoos that he has are almost entirely religious symbols of the Christian faith. Psalms and Proverbs and crosses that have appeared all over his body. He takes a seat in protest over the death of African Americans killed by police. And then he takes a knee as a sign of respect. Doing this, interestingly, causes him in a poll not long after he does this to be one of the most despised players in all of the NFL. And it breaks down unbelievably on racial lines. 37% of Caucasians disliking him and 42% of African Americans liking him a lot from an e-poll online marketing research. He becomes an outcast. I think there's an argument to be made that he lost his job because of this. And I wonder if his statements about his protest don't sound an awful lot like Martin Luther King Jr. asking our country to live up to the promises which the flag was intended to stand for, that all men are created equal. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn to the person sitting next to you for just a second. Does Colin Kaepernick sound anything like Moses? Or am I crazy? Don't talk about the weather. Turn to one another for a minute and chat. Okay. You'll have plenty of time to talk about this in the car and uh, later this afternoon, uh, because I know the Vikings are playing, but whatever. The Packers already won, so it's all good. Uh, The reason that I brought this up is that there was another article in the Washington Post that caught my attention, and it paralleled Tim Tebow and Colin Kaepernick, which I thought was really interesting. And it laid out what I would call the bifurcation of American Christianity, which uh, if you think we're not divided on Sunday morning, we are incredibly divided on Sunday morning. Uh, But one of the things that I thought was interesting is it paralleled Tim Tebow's what I would call very personal faith and Colin Kaepernick's what I would call very public protesting faith. And the reason that I... It it made me think about these two different things. Uh, Because here's what I think. And again, you'll have to go home and think and talk about this. Faith is deeply personal. Moses has an encounter with God where he believes that God speaks to him in a burning bush. And on the other hand, faith is entirely public. What God asks Moses to do, it has social, religious, cultural, and economic implications. 
If you ever thought it was weird that Pharaoh sort of says, you know what, you, okay, great, fine, in the end, why don't you all get out of here? And then after a few minutes or in the story, all of a sudden he changes his mind and decides, wait, no, get back here. You know why? Because his economic engine just walked out the door. This was a socio-political economic move that Moses makes in the context of a deeply held personal faith. The burning bush is an incredible symbol of this. On the one hand, it's just a plain, regular, everyday bush. On the other hand, it's burning and not being consumed. It is entirely earthly and incredibly mysterious. It is deeply personal, and the outcome is incredibly public. Faith is multidimensional. It is both what we believe in our hearts and it is what we do when we live. It's summed up nicely when Jesus is asked, what's the most important thing in the world? And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. It is both deeply personal and incredibly public. And God makes only one promise to Moses. No matter what, I will be with you. Amen.